0: The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106 FM.
1: The Money Show on this Thursday night, brought to you by the ABSA Africa Financial Markets Index cultivating growth by providing a clearer understanding of the African markets. ABSA is a registered FSP. Bettina Engelbrecht is standing by the Clicks Group chief executive. Chat to her in just a moment. Also tonight, uh, a South African-born currency trader found guilty of, they called it the Boxing Day trades in New York, as Sir Ramaphosa was coming in to take over from Jacob Zuma. Um, a Rand currency trader traded in the early hours of the 26th of December. 2017 and has been found guilty in a New York court of currency manipulation. It's a big deal. Uh, Then BHI Trust. I don't know if you were caught up in it. Um, Simon Brown, the financial educator at Just One Lap, bring us up to speed. We'll also chat to Warren Ingram this evening about the red flags you need to look out for in your investments. This is a big investment fund. About two billion rand is estimated to have disappeared. The fund manager has handed himself over to police, got himself locked up in jail and is asking for protection in jail from his investors we'll also chat to yoko they've just hit the two billion rand loans milestone yoko is a clever business um not only do they have the payment devices but when you have a yoko payment device they also get a huge amount of data on you so if you're going into a very busy weekend or if you are going into the christmas season and you need some additional cash flow uh, to buy stock ahead of a, what's going to be a busy weekend and you've got a digital track record with them they can lend you short-term money. And that's what we are be talking about this evening. So there's lots to come on this evening's edition of The Money Show.
2: The Money Show.
0: With Bruce Whitfield on 702.
3: 702.
1: Anything you want to talk about on 072 702 1702, that's the WhatsApp number for your voice notes, or give us a call on 11 88307 or in Cape Town. 60567, particularly if you or somebody you care about has been caught up in that dreadful, dreadful BHI trust fiasco. U.S. economy growing faster than expected in the third quarter helped by really strong jobs market and of course with the jobs market has come higher wages. With higher wages has come higher consumer spending despite the higher for longer interest rate cycle. U.S. GDP growing by a massive 4.9% in the third quarter. Consumer spending accounted for half the growth um, and then of course an increase in inventories didn't hurt either. Saw so a comment from the Stan economist Kevin Lings today making the point that there's strong growth despite high interest rates highlighting the benefit of job creation Uh, the european central bank president christine lagarde today saying the euro area economy is likely to remain weak for the remainder of this year as there are risks to economic growth which are tilted to the downside sounds a bit like this on that particular front
0: you're with Bruce Whitfield on 702.
1: 702. Well, one of the few positives on the JSE today was Clicks reporting an 11.5% increase in profits, a higher dividend thanks to a better second half. Bettina Engelbrecht is the Clix Group Chief Executive on the line to us from Cape Town this evening. And Bettina, we've got high inflation, we've got high interest rates, electricity disruption, lots is going wrong. What went right for you?
4: Well, you know, we stuck to our knitting. I, I guess that's the secret of the success. Sometimes people call us a company sustained performance, but a little bit boring. We prefer it that way. But I would say a couple of things, you know, we always talk about the nature of our business model, the fact that we operate within, you know, very uh, defensive categories and then broad appeal just in terms of the range of products and services and a very loyal customer base in our club card membership. So I think that's really been the difference for us.
1: You, you draw people into the back of the store with their prescriptions. They are gonna stand at the back of the store. They feel sorry for themselves. They then run the gauntlets of the chocolates and the chips and the treats, um, of course, and all of the lotions and potions and everything else, which is a fairly inexpensive pick-me-up in a tough economy. It's the so-called lipstick effect in the economy. And I wonder if that's why you're in a sweet spot where people might not be able to afford a new pair of shoes or a new car, but some lipstick or some cream or whatever it might be, is the one thing that people feel better, you know, buying for themselves.
4: Well, I agree with you. I mean, the other thing is, you know, if you think about three for two promotions and you're thinking about uh, cashback on ClubCard, you know, we've delivered 700 million rand uh, in cashback to customers this year. It means that people have just a little bit extra uh, that they can treat themselves with. And that's, that's, I think, probably what's at the back of that. And then, you know, we've gone for some smaller units, um in terms of the Isle of Temptation, as you <laughs> rightly point out, and that all of those sorts of things help.
1: Uh, over the past year you've added 45 new stores you've got an additional 38 pharmacies you bought sorbet you spent 320 million rand on buying sorbet the mchem 24 pharmacy 24 hour pharmacy in cape town you've got a, a pharmacy software development company called 180 degrees these are all growth engines for the future you're investing for a future despite the uncertainty of the present what gives you the guts to do that
4: well, you know, you know, we, if you reflected on the presentation today, you'd have seen the group's performance absolutely sustained over a 10-year period. I mean, the 10-year CAGAR, Bruce, was 19.8%. I mean, that's really, really phenomenal. So what I would have said is that what gives us confidence is that we know what works. We really understand the customer. Our marketing team in the SA Loyalty Awards was best placed for strategic use of data analytics. Um, And then, of course, you know, we've got uh, the benefit of Card, where we can personally engage with the customer. And importantly, there is such a strong value proposition in the minds of the consumer that they attach to clicks and then private label and exclusives. What more can I say?
1: I mean, we, we saw the death of Raymond Ackerman earlier this year. And, of course, Raymond Ackerman bought the first four pick and pays from Jack Golden, who then took that money and went to start Clix not long after, probably in about 1968 or thereabouts. Today, um, there are 885 stores. So you're keeping with your target. I'm not, and I'm not sure of the, the the sort of timing on this, but you're still targeting 1,200 stores in South Africa uh, for the Clicks group. It's an astonishing penetration target, isn't it?
4: Completely within reach, we believe, and in due course, we will probably go ahead of that number, uh, but that's <laughs> for CEO of the future probably to decide. But it is completely within reach. We at any point know two years in advance where we're going to be opening up, and the pipeline is very clear to us. Importantly, our property teams have the capability proven year after year of opening on average a store a week. Uh, I mean, the capability of opening
1: a store a week, which is 40 to 50, maybe 60 stores in a year, which suggests you hit that 1,200 stores target within five years.
4: Yeah, so we talk about the medium term. I mean, there's nothing that would prevent us from going faster because, of course, you know, we've got a very strong balance sheet. You'd have seen at the end of the financial year, the cash on balance sheet was 2.5 billion rand. That's despite having returned 2.3 billion rand to shareholders already in the course of the year. So um there certainly is, you know, we don't have to borrow money to fund growth
1: no absolutely not at what point does the temptation bite to go beyond South Africa's borders we've seen so many retailers of course come short in that particular act but is it on the is it on the radar at all because one of the great successes of clicks of course has been that it hasn't been tempted to go out even um, when when the the, the boots man was brought into South Africa everybody thought oh oh, good no he's gonna globalize and he went no no hold on a second there's a great opportunity inside of South Africa uh, and that's, I think, been the, the great revelation, like Capitec, like Clicks, and like so many other South African businesses, focusing on your home market is lucrative, it is rewarding, but at some point you do run out of growth space, don't you?
4: There's phenomenal opportunity that remains. Um, when you think about just how many grocers there are, we are generally located where we currently are, co-located with a grocer. And there's, there are still many more um, locations where there's a grocer and where we are not yet. So that's probably as, as far as we could go. Importantly, when you think about pharmacy market shares, In the developed world, corporate pharmacy gets to 70 to 75% of market share. At the moment, corporate pharmacy is just over 50%, so tremendous opportunity still for growth. Uh, Since we were able to open a pharmacy as a a corporate in 2004, we opened our first pharmacy. We have on average probably grown pharmacy market share by one percentage point per annum. So great uh, scope still for improvement in terms of retail pharmacy itself.
3: But the
1: environment is not helpful. The environment, and you, you acknowledge it in your results today, is certainly not uh, not great. The US is flying. Europe is struggling. We're struggling. We're growing at lower than the population uh, growth rate. We're effectively in recession almost permanently over the last 10 years or so. Uh, when it comes to the the ability of South Africans to keep um, you know, joining the queues and keep buying the treats and keep um, spending enough to get the cash back. How concerned are you about the state of the economy and the persistently high interest rates which could even go higher next month?
4: We are incredibly fortunate because of course, you know, we play in defensive categories. Uh, you know, during colds and season, uh, flu season, people get sick and they're going to be buying from the front shop all the way through to the pharmacy. And then, you know, it's uh, peak Christmas trading, people are going to buy a gift for that. Uh, you know, it's Valentine's Day, they're going to buy a gift for that. Uh, it's school opening and school closing and Mother's Day and Father's Day and Women's Day and, and <laughs> of course, let's support the Springboks as well. <laughs> so what, what, I think we have broad, broad, broad appeal thank you very
1: much Bettina engelbrecht the chief executive of click she's got you she's got you where she wants you um an astonishing performance of course they also had um cash flow coming in from uh, claims against the 2021 riots um many millions of rand coming through there because there was huge damage that to outlay to improve their stores and to help stores recover and replace stock of course but this year they have identified 880 million rand Um, to help open the 40 to 50 new stores. They're going to open 40, 50 pharmacies, and they're going to refurbish as many as 60 new stores. Well, refurbish 60 stores in the new year. Um, It's just this constant cycle of renewal and refreshing and renewal and refreshing. As the group gets bigger and bigger, of course, becomes more and more complicated to do, but an astonishing performance um, in a really, really tough environment. Out of clicks today, Chief Executive Bettina Engelbrecht.
0: The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA Corporate and Investment Banking. APSA CIB proudly brings you the Africa Financial Markets Index. APSA is a registered FSP. The Money Show.
2: The Markets.
1: We'll get to Rudy Van Amarva in a moment, but it was a tough day on markets practically everywhere. The U.S. uh, growth rate came out and it surprised the market growth at 4.9%. And that means that consumption in the United States is really, really strong. It's being fueled by the fact that you've got lots of people joining the jobs market or rejoining the jobs market. They're joining at higher wage rates than they were before. And therefore, they've got money to spend, even though there is a very high interest rate environment in that market. Market uh, Consumers are finding the capacity to buy stuff. And that buying stuff, as Kevin Ling's um, uh, pointed out earlier, um, buying any any sort of consumption that comes from job creation is a very good thing. You don't want to be just spending for spending's sake. When people are feeling ebullient and they're feeling confident about the future, they spend. And that is what Americans are doing at the moment. Uh, we've seen our PPI, the producer price inflation number, come out today. It's higher than expected on top of the higher than expected consumer price inflation. I wonder if that's leading to concerns about further rate hikes in this market. We'll test that with Rudy coming up in just a little bit. Baldwin's results market unimpressed there. Um, Baldwin, of course, in the business of building new developments and the Joburg property market is um, struggling considerably. Um, many, many housing markets all over the, the country are struggling. There is some demand in the Western Cape, of course, the semigration effect is real. Uh, but Baldwin's results, they seem that share price slip. And that was somewhat disappointing. Currency did have a better day. We'll talk about a currency trader in New York, South African-born currency trader, the so-called perpetrator of the uh, of the Boxing Day trades. A guy uh, k- called Neil Phillips, the South African-born founder of Glen Point Capital, has been found guilty of trying to manipulate the value of the rand versus the US dollar. And also, keeping it in a nice second half hour of fraud and intrigue, an astonishing story of a guy who has been in the investment markets for many, many years. Uh, um, I looked at the Sinstidian's old boys pages in the early hours of this morning, and I was looking at the sort of donations that Craig Warrener had made to his old school, particularly in terms of the old boys club. He was a very committed old boy. If you knew Craig Warren at school or you know Craig Warren through buy a business or you've lost money via Craig Warren, I'd be curious to hear about the guy because it does feel like he's admitted to a Bernie Madoff style robbing Peter to pay Paul strategy. At least that is what he's reported to have confessed to authorities as he has asked himself to be locked up in a private cell in jail just so that his victims um, can't get him or can't get anybody else to get to him. So clearly, he has uh, ripped off enough people to be substantially nervous about his about his personal safety warren ingram later on on that particular story warren ingram of course is at galileo capital and we'll pick up with him later on on the red flags that they should have seen the investors should have seen the regulators should have seen authorities should have seen uh before losing out of course on potentially two two and a half billion rand the money show
2: the Markets.
1: Rudy Fanamarra, portfolio manager at Adviceworks on the line to us from Cape Town this evening. And US economic growth, the fastest level in nearly
3: five years. The juggernaut that keeps on giving. Rudy, good evening. Evening, Bruce. Yes, no, very, very impressive numbers out of the US. Um so it, it's quite hard to believe actually when one, one looks at the the state of the world around us and the amount of uncertainty and the way the markets are reacting, you know, one one seems to get the feeling that that uh, that growth, even though at the moment is looking good, is, is not necessarily particularly sustainable, and certainly the markets don't seem
1: to be buying it. No, they don't. 4.9% uh, growth. I mean, explain it to me, please. It's all coming from, well, half of it at least is coming from this boom in job creation, the boom in wage increases,
3: and the boom in consumption. Where's the recession? Uh, we're coming, Bruce, apparently, um, but, but certainly yeah, I think there has been Job, jobs have been very, very stable over the last while. Uh, I think a lot of those are, are you know, second and third jobs that people are, are, are taking on to survive this cost of living crisis that they're experiencing, um, which can distort numbers. And, and over time, the, the way that jobs data has been measured has changed very significantly to the extent that, that a lot of people who are unemployed just aren't counted anymore. Um, so one gets a bit of a dichotomy where you've Look on TV, and you see all the tented cities and the unemployed in the US. We get you told that they're at at full employment. Um, So I think there are some 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 oddities around the edges, and and certainly there are concerns on the horizon if if one's looking forward somewhat. You know, as to the outlook for growth and the outlook for uh, for for employment and uh, and and economic stability. There does that explain the retreat of the dollar? Then that these numbers are great.
1: But they're so good that nobody's really willing to buy into them long term.
3: No, that's difficult to say. So at the moment, one would have thought, well, these growth numbers that the, that the dollar actually would have strengthened somewhat. Um, yeah. But, but certainly, uh, I think the market is starting to price in, uh, a reasonable probability of a recession on the horizon. We've been in a, in a situation where, uh, certainly from the U.S. perspective, their markets have been priced f- for all the possible good news you could make up and dream up. Um, And yet they've been experiencing effectively an earnings recession. So the last three consecutive quarters of American earnings numbers have actually been deteriorating. Um, There certainly is a a cost of living crisis going on. We've seen that the housing market is slowing quite substantially. The last three consecutive months have have indicated that that market is, is on the brink of sort of rolling over. Uh, There's lots of concern about commercial real estate imbalances in the U.S. Uh, A lot of loans that were extended when interest rates were half a percent uh, and and the like are now coming up for renegotiation. And a lot of those projects just went back since at at 5% interest rate. Uh, There's potential distress there. PMI numbers are not looking great. Consumer confidence is looking terrible. The yield curve is inverted. There's a lot of indications that, that things are weakening quite materially.
1: And then the Chinese this week didn't do quite enough to excite the market at all because they announced some stimulus points but didn't go quite far enough, not least as far as the market was concerned.
3: Yeah, they are talking about putting stimulus into their economy. Uh, I think in the region of $137 odd billion, which is uh, a reasonably material sum of money, um, you know, we have a lot of concerns still around the, the property sector, country garden has effectively defaulted on on certainly some of its bonds at this stage and i, I think there are there worries that that there might be more to come so um you know we don't know whether the stimulus is going to be quite sufficient to to get the chinese economy on a on an accelerating trajectory again and uh, there is giving horribly gloomy the uh,
1: european central bank christine lagarde today is saying europe's in all kinds of bother don't expect any
3: help on that particular front unfortunately yeah it's been a very stagnant stagnant from economic growth for for possibly the past two decades or so already um but they did pause an in interest rate hikes now i think it's the first time in, in 15 odd months saying that they'd hoped they'd done enough and there were some indications that inflation were, were coming off but certainly uh, they're still inclined to to maintain reasonably high interest rates until they see evidence of of inflation coming down. So no, no short-term indications of any stimulus coming from, from, from
1: Europe at this stage. The clicks results, if we shift focus uh, swiftly, um, operationally doing fine, actually, in a in a very tough environment, Bettina Engelbrecht's view on this, um, that they're in just an economic sweet spot. Um, whether you're feeling If you're feeling well, you go in and you buy things to make you feel better. Um, if you're feeling sick, you go in to buy things that make you feel better.
3: It's uh, It seems like an ideal business model. It is, I and mean, that, that's why companies like this, you who know, and certainly they're, they're very good operators, there's, there's no doubt about that. It's a very difficult environment in which they produce absolutely credible results. Uh, companies who persistently produce credible results and persistently produce uh, enhanced earnings growth and, and better margins uh, tend to get premium ratings. Certainly they sell essentially essential goods, you know, things that people have to consume. Um and that holds up in, in tough times and, and I think they've they've earned their, their premium rating and and uh, certainly by the their outlook at the moment, you know, I think they they'll continue delivering uh, improved earnings going forward. We mentioned U.S. property
1: development. We mentioned Chinese property development. We can't go without mentioning South African property development. And South African property development is coming quite short at the moment. Higher interest rates, higher interest rates for longer, a lack of household cash flow, um, a really difficult domestic environment. And Baldwin, which benefited so hugely from the very low interest rate environment that was in COVID and immediately afterwards, is beginning to see that runway um,
3: quite substantially shortened. They are, Bruce. Uh, you know, under the circumstances, I think they also produced a reasonably credible set of results. Uh, I think earnings up in the region of three odd percent, despite them selling less properties. Uh, they're managing their margins very carefully by the look of things and, and their actual offering in terms of you know, uh, offering smaller properties uh, and, and managing the cost within those, those developments very well. So, under the circumstances, I think it could have been a lot worse. And certainly, they, they Chunks of the rest of our property market that are experiencing materially more pressure than they are. The the office space, for example, um, is is under tremendous pressure.
1: Thank you. Rudy Fanamarva, portfolio manager at AdviceWorks on the line to us this evening from Cape
0: Town. Bruce
2: is on the money show
1: welcome to the monday show this evening peter armitage standing by we'll chat to him a currency trader born in south africa accused of manipulating the currency has been found guilty of doing precisely that at the time that sir ramaphosa was coming into office and then we'll catch up with the biggest fraud we've seen in a while bhi trust this insidians old boy craig warren handing himself over to the cops uh, welcome to The Money Show this evening. The Money Show brought to you by the APSA Africa Financial Markets Index, cultivating growth by providing a clearer understanding of the African markets. APSA is a registered FSP, financial services provider. A South African-born trader found guilty of foreign exchange fraud in New York. Before we talk about that, Peter Armitage, Chief Executive at Anchor Capital, a really nice turnaround on the day, and we know that these things can be fairly short-lived, uh, a very nice turnaround on the day for, for the round.
0: Yeah, so the the RAND has weakened a lot, uh, Bruce. You know, we're out about 12% for the year. So it's very easy for, uh, you know, to 50 cents to one RAND move. In fact, we've seen a number of them this year. Um, The biggest driver is probably, you know, Chinese stimulus out there. Um, So at the moment, with load shedding being in a good place, that is tending to have an impact on the currency. Uh, Global external factors like the... The dollar against all other currencies and what's happening in China tend to be the biggest drivers
1: of the end at the moment. Can a uh, Springbok win against New Zealand provide a little bit of short-term optimism, a bit of a, uh, a sort of a, a wonderful relay effect for the currency? Or is that a figment of our imagination? Quite a few people are sending me emails saying, if the box win, will the currency improve? And uh, there's no way I can answer that question. So I'm passing the buck or yeah, giving you the, the, the hospital pass on that one.
0: <laughs> it's unlikely to have an impact, Bruce, but I think if we went on Monday, uh, the euphoria in the country will have the impact on the financial markets in some way.
1: I, I have no doubt. A little bit of good, a little bit of good news goes a, a long way. Now, talk to me, please, about a fellow by the name of Neil Phillips. Neil Phillips, South African-born, a uh, founder of a business called Glen Point Capital, found guilty of manipulating the value of the rand against the dollar. It was the so-called Boxing Day trades, incredibly suspicious trades, happening on the twenty-sixth of December, in some fairly high volumes in on what would have been a very quiet trading day.
0: Yeah, Bruce. It reads like something out of a movie. Um, uh, Neil is well known to South Africans. I've been to his office in London a few times, um, and you know, there's a fine line in financial markets. Every time people buy or sell a share, they're trying to get it cheaper, or they're selling a share, they're trying to sell it more expensive. Um, so he had an option, which if the rand went through 12.50 uh, back at the time. Um, you know, he made tens which, of millions of dollars.
1: Which way? If it weakened past twelve fifty, or strengthened better than twelve fifty, it's hard to tell and hard to remember.
0: Yeah. So if it strengthened through twelve fifty, so if the okay. rain got stronger. Now the you know you got a picture that they got arrested in Ibiza on a family holiday, and um, so a big controversy. And then uh, you know you ultimately got a jury in America, and he had to go over to America to be tried. And uh, you can picture the facts around it. uh, Made it a fairly uh, simple decision for the jury. Um, And I I think the biggest factor, um, it it is a fine line. There's lots of gray areas in this space. Um, But the biggest factor is he put the trades on uh, the 26th of December through Singapore. And as you can imagine, um, the majority of people are trading in the currency are asleep. So it's fairly easy to move the currency. And there was no doubt, and I don't think he contended, that he didn't try and manipulate the currency through that point. Uh, but his defence was that it's kind of fairly standard practice, but you can picture a sceptical US jury sitting there going, "This sounds awfully suspicious."
1: You seem to have a have some concern on the on the verdict, then, and, and and the jury system in the United States, which on something as technical as currency trading, they might possibly get wrong. You seem to suggest that they may have got this one wrong.
0: Well, it's—I mean, you know—there's no doubt in what he did. And um, the question is really, and it's, it's a global issue, that at what point is this fine line crossed? I think the fact that he was doing it at that point in time was there. But, you know, a jury is not full of financial and technical people. Um, and, you know, I think a jury of financial services people might come to a slightly different conclusion. Uh, yeah, they would a, they yeah. would have
1: a vested interest in the markets I mean here's the question is did he behave unethically did he behave immorally did he behave <laughs> illegally because this is serious I mean he goes to jail for 10 years if convicted it's the rest of his working life he's a what 53, 54 year old guy
0: yeah I mean it's, he had a, he'd, he'd established a 20 billion rand hedge fund business in London uh, he was certainly a high flyer um, you know the well known in, in financial markets both in South Africa and London um and I think, you know, that he, he left a huge trail of... It was clear that he wasn't particularly worried about uh, no. uh, su- surveillance and the like, because he left a trail that was very easy to find. Um, and, uh, you know, that's just not thinking about exactly what he was doing on the ramifications. I mean, the stuff is incredibly
1: technical, Peter. In in simple terms, where would the line be if it's possible to explain it simply? Because the you you you'd go you trade in a particular direction to achieve a goal. Then normally in a vibrant market, particularly a market of the the rand and the volatility and the huge volumes that are usually traded, there'll be contestation. He chose a moment where there would be no contestation um and you some people would argue that's simply smart trading he took a public holiday he woke
0: up really early in the morning and off he went yeah absolutely and that's where the gray area uh, sits bruce so he basically had a contract with a bank and the contract with it was morgan stanley in this case and if the rand hit 1250 he got to his, his not himself his friend got to make tens of millions of dollars um and it, it was quite clear that, you know, choosing that time to trade the kind of quantum that he was trading, um, that it was much easier to achieve. Um, and part of his defense was the people on the other side are sophisticated financial investors. Morgan Stanley is well aware of what can be achieved. And hence, there was no harm to the man in the street. Um, but I, I guess the, you know, the set of consequences, the, the, the set of circumstances um, just don't, don't make it look very good. Uh, reading,
1: yeah, re- reading the reports, it seems like a, a terribly collegial sort of affair. He went off and shook the hands of the prosecutors and he hugged his defense lawyers and um, you know, off he went. But I, one wonders if there's grounds for appeal in this particular matter. One would think so.
0: Yeah, I think I mean, there's obviously a lot of money behind it and a lot of money, money behind them, so they're going to exhaust the legal system. Uh, but I think you have to view it in the context of the U.S. authorities are trying to convict quite a few even more high-profile pro- high people Um, with this kind of manipulation. Um, So it's it's important for them to, to get a victory.
1: Peter Armitage, thank you for explaining it so clearly. Peter Armitage is the chief executive at Anchor Capital, South African-born hedge fund uh, manager, uh, the uh, co-founder of Glenpoint Capital in the United Kingdom, 20 billion rand hedge fund, found guilty of uh, manipulating the value of the currency, manipulating it stronger. It was just as Cyril Ramaphosa, of course, was ascending to power and Jacob Zuma was on his way out and we were in that period of Ramaphoria. Remember Ramaphoria? It was a lovely couple of weeks. Uh, Maybe we'll get some rugby for you. That'll be nice too. Hopefully lasting a little longer than two weeks. In a moment, financial educator at just one lap, Simon Brown. uh, One fraud case to another. This time missing billions from somebody in Joburg taking money that didn't belong to him. And uh, that is a whole new kettle of fish. We'll pick up on this story in a moment.
2: Bruce Whitfield on The Money Show,
0: 6 to 8 p.m.
1: A fund manager gone rogue. Hundreds of people may have lost money since Lydian's old boy, Craig Warrener, admitting to wrongdoing. He's handed himself over to police and is in jail cells, admitting to a Bernie Madoff-style robbing Peter to pay Paul strategy when it comes to investing. Classic Ponzi scheme stuff. Simon Brown, financial educator at Just One Lap with us. Uh, It has the the, uh, ring of Bernie Madoff about it, Simon Brown, perhaps just on a smaller scale.
5: Uh, evening, Bruce. It absolutely does, and, and in part because it, it, it's been 15 years. I mean, it's the duration of, of 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 the of the crime of the criminal acts that's been able to to go through. The, the difference, perhaps, from Bernie Madoff is that Bernie Madoff was giving unrealistic returns, uh, whereas, by all accounts, in this case, the returns were around eight to 10 percent a year, which in this market is 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 not out out of the ordinary.
1: No, it's not. But it's also, I mean, at some point the dividend flow stopped. I think it was about 2018 um, when the last dividends were paid. There were some red flags around this. Do we know um, exactly what it was that Craig Warner was getting up to with what he called the BHI Trust?
5: I, as, as I understand, I mean there's two parts to that, and the one is the vehicle that he was using, trust, and, and that's an important one. But let's get to that in a second. I, as I understand, it was essentially just in managing money. There's not a lot of insight into it at this point, but it was just managing a uh, third-party money. D- to your point, the dividends suddenly stopping uh, should have been a, a, a it's not a, a first red flag, certainly a red flag that. Hang on a sec, what's happening here? This had been a dividend paying, uh, entity. Some, some, some funds, some, uh, collective investment schemes don't pay dividends, they reinvest them. If have been paying dividends and they suddenly disappear, let's be clear, the underlying businesses he was investing in would still have been paying dividends, even if perhaps slightly reduced. Uh, 2018 was not a great year for equity markets, but the dividends were still coming through and therefore should have been getting passed on to, to the investors.
1: Was the, the trust structure an unusual structure for a collective investment scheme? If you're collecting public money, um, is the, the structure a, a common one?
5: No, it's not common at all. It's completely unusual. I've never heard heard of this. A, a trust would be, you know, I set up a trust for beneficiaries. My, my partner, my kids, uh, my niece and nephew, whatever the case may be. Maybe I set it up for endangered wildlife or a school or something like that. There, there's a beneficiary of the trust. Using that for an investment vehicle, I, I put it this way, Bruce. I mean, it's just to me that's not what it's designed for, not for multiple members to to invest into who who aren't sort of you know directly beneficiaries of that trust. That to me was the the, the giant red flag. The, the, there's so many other vehicles which are are recognised and used, and truthfully have proper controls around them to try and prevent this sort of of, of outcome.
1: Do we know if he was registered at all with the proper authorities? If you're taking public money, whether you're a bank or you're an investment scheme of any kind, you've got to be registered. You've got to be regulated in some form. Did he use the trust structure to get around that requirement?
5: I think he did. Uh, that, that, that is how I see the situation. I, I, I could be wrong,ly but that does seem to be it. Because if you if you take a, a collective investment scheme, which is hedge funds, unit trust. Uh uh, 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 the ETFs and, and the like. I mean, there's a, there's a ton of regulation around who's your key individual. Uh, what is your FSCA license? Is it category one or category two? And I appreciate I'm throwing a lot of jargon out here for the listeners, but that jargon is there to say, well, this is the person who's overseeing. You've got the right levels. You've got a compliance officer who essentially is your internal auditor who is making sure that, you know, what you're saying is happening in terms of returns and and and, and uh, asset fund management is actually real uh, and not just uh, made up numbers which seems to be the case here
1: Certainly, so at one point, he was a very active member of the St Old Boys Group. He was instrumental in setting up what is a beautiful Old Boys Club on the St uh, grounds. It's got a wonderful view towards Santon. I've, I've been fortunate enough to go there before. Certainly, so a very active member of society. Where did it all go wrong? Was it a, a 2008 thing? You trace this thing back 15 years. That kind of lines up.
5: Yeah, it was 2008. And Bruce, I've seen this before. So, 2008 was... And for 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 the listeners who remember, a horror year it it was. An absolute horror year because we refer to it now, 15 years later, as the, uh, the great financial crisis. Uh, it was the the, the 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 home loans, the, the bond markets in, in the U.S., equity, everything was collapsing. We weren't sure at the point whether banks would survive and which banks would or wouldn't. Financial markets absolutely ground to a halt. And it took many years, a decade, to really get it right. What happened there was he took, a, uh, we assume, he took a, a loss in the portfolio. Firstly, everyone took a loss of varying degrees and rather than admit to the to the extent of the loss uh, he padded it whether he said the loss was smaller whether he said he had made a profit i don't know the details in that regard but that means you've told clients that their hundred grand is now worth let's say 90 when actually it's worth 80. And now you've got to try and, and claim back that, that 10 rand. And it's that first little step. And, and I've literally seen this before with, with people managing money, where they have a bad period. And instead of you know, owning up to it and saying, that was a horror, uh, they try and fudge it. And they think, you know what? It'll all be fine in three months, six months, a year. It'll all come back. In this case, 15 years later, they still haven't recovered
1: it's extraordinary that he's not even contesting anything. He's not Marcus justing this at all. I mean, he's basically gone to the cops and said, yes, it was me too, Mamina. Uh, here I am. Um, I've been a bad boy and terribly sorry about that. Please lock me up in a jail cell by myself so that my victims can't get to me or can't get anybody else to get to me. He's actually in fear of his life. He understands the magnitude of what he has done. He appreciates the fact that people are going to be more than just a little bit upset with him.
5: Absolutely, 100%. And we buy accounts, and and, and again, this is unverified, but it was potentially in excess of two billion rand. This is a significant amount of of money. And also, Bruce, I think we have to understand that it's been 15 years of truthfully, it's been hell for him. He's had this weighing on him for for the entire time. And I think it eventually just became simply too much. That in no way excuses what he did, um, but it's been a horror 15 years for him. And I think it just got too much for him in the end.
1: Uh, It certainly seems that way, Simon Brown. Thank you for explaining it. Simon Brown, the financial educator at Just One Lap. We'll get Warren's view on this at half past seven, Warren Ingram with us, Um, and just the red flags. And uh, Simon has drawn attention to the big one, which is that this wasn't a traditional investment structure. So you've got to wonder who the people are who invested money in it. And we're not judging you. We're curious as to why you invested money. And if you invested money, what were you being told? What were you being promised? What returns were you getting that's what makes me interested in this particular story and i'm sure many other people will be too if you have were caught up and you can explain to us what the allure was and whether um mr craig warren was simply the most charming um salesman that you've ever met uh, or and where you started feeling apprehensive and nervous and how you feel today Uh, millions billions potentially vanished
0: The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On nights 2.7 and 106 FM.
1: We'll talk Yoko, we'll talk small business, and when is the right time for you to step back from your small business? It's a real problem for so many people. There's a lovely story about... uh, Who was it? Somebody at a conference was telling the story about how he'd gone to consult a family business, and... He sat in the boardroom and waited and waited and waited. And finally, this person, about 70 years old, came into the room and uh, said, Hello, welcome. Thank you so much for coming to advise us. And it's great. We need to talk about succession planning. And he said, Absolutely. When will your son be here? And he said, No, no, it's not for my son. My dad will be here in a minute. (laughs) His dad was in his 90s and still running the business. Um, And uh, the 70-year-old son just wanted his turn like Queen Elizabeth and King Charles. (laughs) That sort of succession. At some point, you do have to step back. Uh, How do you know when that point is? When is that point appropriate? Uh, And how uh, do you make that decision? The Money Show is brought to you by the APSA Africa Financial Markets Index, cultivating growth by providing a clearer understanding of the African markets. APSA is a registered
3: FSP.
0: The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702.
3: Well,
1: the Yoko is best known as a supplier of payment devices at tills and at markets. It also will lend money to clients. It's got a very intimate piece. Of their data or their data. And it's able to help them with their cash flow requirements. Small businesses that are signed up with it, that have got a track record, um, are able to, say, for example, you know, you're likely to have big demand at a pre Christmas market in the next couple of weeks. You might go to Yoko and you say, listen, I need some money for stock on the Thursday, I'll pay you back on Monday. Well, so far, it's lent out two billion rand like this adam duxbury is the capital lead at yoko on the line to us from vienna this evening um adam i mean i think i've got it right in terms of the way in which the process works good evening
6: bruce you've got it spot on do you still need me
1: <laughs> no you do done thank you so much for coming goodbye um <laughs> but this this is two billion rand in total that you've lent over time this isn't the size of your book because that would be a very big lending book uh to, to be running
6: That's correct. So that's two billion over the last five years. And obviously, a portion of that is uh, still actively being um, collected.
1: Uh, And how does it work? I mean, you've got, um, I think when I last checked, 350,000 Yoko machines in the market looking at expansion opportunities in other parts of Africa and into the Middle East. But of those 350,000, how many of those people are creditworthy, people you're prepared to lend money to?
6: So we look at our active merchant base and obviously a percentage of those active merchants that are transacting regularly with us that we know are going to be able to repay their, uh, cap- their Yoko Capital advances and a percentage of those are deemed to then be eligible. Um, it's of the active base, it's approximately 40% that have an offer available at any given moment.
1: And, uh, and how do they trigger it? How does the process work?
6: So essentially, um, a Yoko cash advance is available to any eligible Yoko merchant. Eligible means that they've been transacting with us for at least three months and they meet a minimum transaction threshold and they go through the kind of assessment that you can imagine would be important to understand what this business can afford and whether they're um, obviously, uh, you know, it would be healthy for this business to take this amount of money. And then that business can access and view that offer in their Yoko app. They can configure the amount that they need. They can choose the amount of time that they'd like to spend repaying the advance. And then it's very simple from there. It's one day until they'll receive the funds into their their business's bank account. And we then collect a percentage of their daily sales until the Ah, repayment is complete. Okay.
1: And then, I mean, in terms of interest rates, how are you regulated in terms of what you can charge for the service?
6: So because the solution is a cash advance, it isn't regulated under the National Credit Act. The agreement that we have with merchants is essentially a purchase of their future revenues, which we purchase at a pre-agreed upon uh, discounted rate. And the way that we do that is very transparent. We will announce the full fees that the merchant is expected to pay up front, and that's very visible. And over time, we obviously just collect that apportionately.
1: And they don't have a choice to speed that up. If they suddenly have a much better month than expected, um, you will still cl- collect your amount of money over time because you've taken a particular amount of risk and over you you're sort of budgeted for the risk, if you like. Um, and so you will then, to whatever time they've agreed to, you will collect that amount of money over that time period. And they can't necessarily chivvy it up to try and save some money on the interest or the, the additional fees.
6: So it is true that the initial fees don't typically change unless the merchant agrees to settle early, in which case there's a negotiable discount that happens okay. upon that moment. But typically the, the kind of flexibility that this product offers, which is, you know, I think what's really important for merchants is that if you do have a slow week or even if you have a week where you do zero trade, we will collect zero repayments. Um, and then when you're performing a little bit stronger, then the payments will repayments will obviously increase. But a merchant can at any time decide to do a manual settlement early and there is usually a benefit for doing so.
1: Is there people intervention in this process? Because it sounds like an ideal automation opportunity. You've got the data. Do you automate the application and uh, application process and the, the settlement period once people are familiar with it? Or is it possible to do it simply by an app or do you need to spend 400 reams of paper and um, kill three trees in the process?
6: No, spot on. I mean, it's really part of the Yoko DNA to do things very simply and to use technology. So the, uh, the sort of assessment process is, is run and managed by some very crev- clever risk models, which are people that are much smarter than me that I get the pleasure of working with. And as for the actual application process, a merchant really just needs to visit their app or the Yoko portal, configure their cash advance as to the specifications that work best for them and just click accept. So there's really no need for a human interaction, but of course we're all av- always available at the end of a call or through the chat in the app if there's any questions or things we can help with. At the end of the day, I think something really important is that for the Yoko business case, really lifetime value and longevity and health and growth and thriving of our merchants is what's most important. Our business is a financial ecosystem and we want to support the merchants on their journey. It's not just about Joko Capital. It's not just about them using our product. It's really about helping them thrive. So that ecosystem is something really important.
1: Uh, and I, I can't imagine the default rate is particularly big if it's there at all, because you should have a reliable track record. I'm surprised that you only need three months of track record. But by then, I suppose you've got enough data of data as to whether or not people have got cash flow going, if they've got a reliable sort of Thursday buying stock selling by Monday sort of thing, that actually you've got a really tightly focused uh, market here.
6: Yeah, we we have um, industry-leading provision and write off rates, so those are very low. And um, I guess we have the benefit of really rich transaction history information, and we make sure that when a merchant gets an offer that that's within their affordable range, that that's a healthy amount of money for that merchant to borrow.
1: Thank you very much to Adam Duxbury. the capital lead at Yoko this evening on the line to us from Vienna Uh, but yeah it's a really fascinating business model that ability to to go in depth and to see uh, your business's entire credit history uh, and to be able to then make uh, a decision really really quickly as to whether or not you're going to be good for a loan uh, and to do it quickly and efficiently Um, and because it's an advance and not a loan as such then the regulators aren't there and it's it's an interesting approach and i wonder if you've taken out one of these loans in terms of the pricing in terms of the way in which it works um clearly i mean they've got they've lent out two billion rand this way so clearly the market is prepared to accept the the business model, but I wonder if they uh, the process which they has been spelled out to us by Adam this evening is one that has got legs in other parts of the economy. Give us a shot this evening here on the Money Show in a moment. We'll talk to Son Goba Vuba, who's an entrepreneur. All about when it's time to hand over to the next generation.
0: The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA Corporate and Investment Banking. APSA CIB proudly brings you the Africa Financial Markets Index. APSA is a registered FSP. If
1: you listen to... The Genius Podcast Series, episode one with Robbie Brozen. He describes how he built Nando's and he got to a thousand stores by about 2008. And he lost his, his he lost his energy, he lost his, he lost his passion. I think he was exhausted. And he says wonderfully, At that time, he realized it was time to put the adults in charge. (laughs) It had been a wild ride. I mean, these two youngsters, and they were in their um, sort of mid to late 20s, Robbie Rosen and Fernando Duarte, when they went for that fateful lunch at Chicken Land in Rosettenville. And... They don't remember who said it to who first, but one of them said to the other, this we've got to take to the world. It's the most delicious chicken. So they bought Chicken Land. It was a grubby little takeaway. That's the way Robbie described it to me. And they grew it to three stores, and then uh, the Entobans got involved, and they provided the capital, and they tried and failed in Australia, and they uh, tried and failed, and they nearly sold in the UK because it wasn't working. But then uh, they... Uh, they Employed Robbie Enthoven, Dick Enthoven's son, who, um, which Robbie describes as um, finished at university and was doing nothing, but Robbie Enthoven just leapt at the opportunity um, to to help run Nando's in the UK. Took it over, ran it, um, changed the business model substantially to some pretty, you know, upper sort of taking it away from from quick service restaurant into sort of a really nice middle-class dining experience and fundamentally shifted it and almost created the category of casual dining in the United Kingdom. So certainly the way in which businesses evolve is really fascinating. And I'm, I encourage you to listen to um, the Genius Podcast series in its entirety, episodes one to eight, because there's so many great lessons in there. But, uh, uh, just, just the color and the pizzazz and the the, the madness of now. Is such a wonderful one to kick off with. Um, the rate of growth, of course, has slowed down from the time where Robbie Brozen handed it over to the professionals and they've come and they've formalized systems and processes and that's fairly natural. At some point, every business will transition from the founder to a new generation of chief executives as Investec has been doing in recent years as well under Fani Titi. So, on Hoba Vuba, is an entrepreneur and you must see this all the time in terms of uh, founders who just hold on for dear life they're people who created their businesses they love their businesses their businesses are them and they are their businesses and it's just really hard to let go it's a bit like trying to disown a child do something mm-hmm. along those sorts of lines
2: Indeed. Absolutely. Indeed. Um, um, indeed, indeed. Thank you so much for having me tonight. I laugh at that analogy around it's almost like losing their child because for a lot of founders, that's what they say. My business is my baby. Um, and that moment of trying to decide when it's time to let go is such a, it, it's beyond business. It's not a business decision. It's a very emotional decision and takes quite a while sometimes for founders to get to that revelation. So correct, Bruce. We see a lot of it and sometimes we see, the clutches of the founder a little bit too long on the business actually kills or stifles that business in some cases but definitely not an easy decision to get to but one that is needed if you're looking for the business to kind of shift into its next stage and its next level and you realize that you as the person who's taken the business this far may not actually be the best person to take the business to the next level.
1: And that could be in five years. It could be in 10 years. It could be 15. It could be 30 years. It could be longer, perhaps. Um, it, uh, yeah. it just, it, it, everyone has, I suppose, a usefulness curve. And uh, how do you scientifically measure whether or not it's, the problem is an, a, a founder that's holding on too long?
2: It's so true, Bruce, that it's different timelines. We've seen it um, a year into a business. We've seen it 12 years into a business. And correct, as you say, it's kind of like, well, how do you know? And I think some of the spaces that you know is often that it's it's based on kind of the business's growth trajectory and how quickly that business matures. Um, we often say kind of in the early stages, you find that the, the business is very much built around the entrepreneur. It's very much a hustle culture culture. and if the entrepreneur is the one landing their sales, they probably know each of their customers or know them pretty well and if they don't work, there's no business signed. Um, and the business coming in is kind of manageable and I always say one of the key dimensions that shows that something has shifted is if the rate at which the business is growing or the rate at which things need to be delivered has become chaotic and it's no longer uh, sustainable for a single individual to do it and some of the key signs is you start seeing people drop the ball you start to see things fall between the cracks you start to see the founder undergo massive burnout exhaustion you start to see that kind of basic delivery, basic things are actually being dropped. And that's often a sign. Or you start to see flatlining growth in a business that should actually still be exponentially growing in the environment that it's in and in the opportunity in which it participates in. So those are often some of the signs we see. Um, and sometimes it is that they've started to hire in more you know, business professional people who are less entrepreneurial into the business. And those people don't And they start to kind of be in a revolving door, come in very quickly, exit very quickly. And that's often actually a sign that they are coming in and trying to set up things with scale and fundamental kind of system processes, changes, and it's not necessarily landing well or being embraced by the existing business that is in transition.
1: Yeah, and it's really really difficult to do it. I mean, who usually calls you in because it's often the founder themselves are, are you know, are the are the least aware of the impact that they're having, the negative impact. And these are often family businesses, these are businesses that are, could be multi-generational family businesses. And you know, people try to have the conversation with mom or dad and they go, "Excuse me. Have you not do you not know who I am?" Highly Do you prepared. not know what I've created here? <laughs> you are ungrateful. And then it just, Christmas is hell forever <laughs> until it gets sorted out. And it's, and it's, it's so unfortunately common. Christmas is, is hell. Sunday's
2: family lunches are hell. It kind of doesn't wait till Christmas. And when you say who calls us in, I think what I find often with entrepreneurs or founders is that they may call you in for something different entirely. Um, that may not be the answer that they're looking for. That may not be their diagnosis of what they believe the problem is. So they may bring you in for an operational intervention, an off-model intervention, a hiring intervention, a you know business strategy intervention. And as you kind of pick through the layers, speak to the team, um, try to assess kind of the growth trajectory and opportunity of that business, you start to uncover where some of the problems are. Um, So sometimes it is the founder calling you in for a very different problem, or sometimes it is part of their senior management team or a co-founder or senior executives within that business calling you in for certain interventions, um, but as you kind of dig in deeper, you start to realize where the challenge is. If everyone that you're talking to and every problem that is mentioned and uncovered kind of circles back to how we do things or how we've done things all the time or how kind of how close the founder is to every single decision that needs to be made or how disempowered senior executives or co founders even may feel in the business. Those are often kind of the types of conversations that come up where you may have been brought in for a fundamentally different reason. But the more and more you probe, this is the theme that comes up and unfortunately reveals the reality of what the real handbrake to the business is.
1: So how then do you go about finding a fit for a business that is dynamic, that is exciting, that is family-owned, because they very seldom mm-hmm. is it just one family member involved. There are a whole bunch of family members, some of whom may think that they are the natural successor to mom or dad, and actually they're entitled to the job, and they're going to go for it as well. And everyone knows that, you know, little Freddie <laughs> was a, a very sweet little boy, but actually um, this is a, on a hiding to nothing, and that becomes quite yeah. a difficult conversation as well, doesn't it?
2: It is a very difficult conversation. I don't think any of these conversations have been easy. And I think what I generally try to do in these moments is try and understand what the end goal or vision for this business is. So, kind of, you know, closing your eyes and when you started this business, what was the intent? And if the intent was some pan African multinational company, and you get this sometimes, or a billion, you know, billion rand business, then you kind of say, okay, let's let's go with that and that view and that's what we're out to build. Let's take a look at where we are now and what's going to be fundamentally needed to shift or change in order for us to get there. Um, It's You know, kind of making it a little less personal, like you say, Bruce, it's very difficult to get in between family members, but I think we're, The family wealth, the family well-being, the family prosperity is tied to the well, you know, the well-being and the doing well of this business. It shifts the conversation a bit around kind of what is the best for this business to reach its ultimate potential and therefore where are we now and what are the key decisions we need to make. And I pause when I say decisions because I find that you know, we make we need to make the decision many times. So you may decide yes, let's bring in that you know external CEO to run this business but a week later when they start making certain decisions or kind of driving their strategy, you need to make that decision again that yes, we've made the decision to bring this person in and therefore give them the room to do the work that we've hired them for. Um, and sometimes people can't help themselves so sometimes we actually need to build in a bit of distance between the founder and the person that's come in for a certain period for them to be able to land well, learn the business and kind of cast a view and part for the business that's not overly influenced by the founder and then rather spend a lot of time trying to sell that new vision, that new strategy or the shifts in strategy or whatever it may be to the founder so that there's deep buy-in and deep accountability to the new executive or CEO that's been brought in on KPIs and deliverables. It fundamentally changes the relationship.
1: Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, Teto Yati was brought in by the Fenter family to run Altron. Mm-hmm. Fenta family, uh, just uh, this this superpower family. And things weren't working out the way in which they needed to for the future. Yeah. And the family got together and said, look, we need a CEO. And they chose him, and Yati. And Yati yeah. spun out Byte's technology and um, you know, made it into a far smaller but much more profitable business. And Altron is in better shape today than it was the day he took it over. Um, and it just goes to show that when you make sensible decisions as a family, um, yeah. you actually can do really good things for, for multi-generational wealth. Because ultimately, I can't imagine that any founder would want to see the the love of their life destroyed mm. over over a period of time. They don't necessarily see it when they're in it. And sometimes they need a nasty little um shake. Um, to be be told some uncomfortable truths. But it's got to be done carefully. It's got to be done sensitively. And then you've got to find a solution to the problem. And that solution is often, let's look a little wider than the family.
2: Correct. And I think, like you say, it needs to be done so sensitively because in the moment, for a lot of founders, they don't see the problem. Um, Like very amazing, intelligent entrepreneurs who've built incredible businesses, scratching their heads trying to understand why the business is just not going beyond a certain point. And the reality is we're all human and we all have our bl- blind spots and kind of where the person is involved is probably some of our biggest blind spots. Um, so like you say, it, it really is to kind of step back and re-engage with the founder around what their intent and what their dream for this business is and really deeply connect to that and then be able to show that your intention is actually to help realize that ultimate outcome and for the family as well. It's like there's a purpose for this business, for this family's well-being and wealth and we're actually trying to realize that and let's actually take a step back to understand how we achieve that rather than it being a finger pointing and kind of this is the problem and you're the problem and you know this is not the right person to take over but it kind of lifts the conversation to an objective level around what is the potential of this business and how do we get it there
1: Does it ever get to the Jack Nicholson Tom Cruise interaction in A Few Good Men, where they're standing in the courtroom and um, you know Jack Nicholson says to Tom Cruise's character, "You want the truth? You can't handle the truth."
2: Does it ever get like that? I wish I could say no, but yeah, I think it It does. does Sometimes and sometimes worse.
1: Oh, my goodness me. So, thank you very much indeed. So, the entrepreneur um, who helps other entrepreneurs make sensible choices for the long term. In a bit, Warren Ingram uh, from Galileo Capital. We're going to talk about fixed deposits or the stock market at a really difficult time for investors and investments. It's in response to a question from Robert. Uh, Plus, we need to talk this evening uh, about BHI. um, The BHI Trust, a huge debacle. What were the red flags? What should investors have seen? That is what is coming up next.
0: You're with Bruce Whitfield on
1: 702. 702. Welcome to The Money Show. Warren Ingram is the uh, financial advisor, he's a director at Galileo Capital, he's a certified financial planner, he is a master of all of his trades and contributes to The Money Show on a Thursday night. Before we get into what we want to talk about, BHI Trust. Uh, it's this investment vehicle that has gone down in flames. The operator, the fund manager, has confessed um, and has admitted wrongdoing um, and is sitting in jail um, trying to get away from the people whose money he He has lost over the last 15 years. His name is Craig Warrener, probably two billion, two and a bit billion gone. Um, What should investors have noticed was wrong, Warren? It's too late now for them, but we
7: want to make sure that nobody
1: else gets caught out.
7: Uh, I mean, I think it's uh, the, the, there are a few red flags, Bruce. In, in, you know, one of them is your, your investment. When you're going to put money somewhere, you, you need to know that it's it's regulated and registered with a, an appropriate uh, body. So, for example, if you're going to put it with a bank, you, you need to know that it has a banking license. You, you know, you go and look on the Reserve Bank's website and you can find uh, all the banks there. Uh, if it's going to be a unit trust, you go onto the ACISA website and you can see all the unit trusts there and if someone says to you the money you're going to invest with me is going to go into xyz unit trust simply go and check make make sure that it is a registered unit trust uh, and and so you go with with all of these investments you know in this instance uh you, you know one of the red flags is d- does it have an uh, fsp number and and you know so, so financial services provider number because that means it's registered with a financial sector conduct authority. That's the regulator that, that looks after all of us that give advice and, and manage investments. And if it has an FSP number, it's no, no guarantee that, uh, you know, that, that means that it's completely above board all the time in every aspect. But, but it's certainly a red flag if someone wants to take your money and doesn't have an FSP number, doesn't have a bank account or a bank license or isn't a a, a unit trust you, you you need to start asking some serious questions you know the, the only other entity i can think of for example would be a stockbroking company and, and and you can check that with the JSE. so m- maybe the first one is uh, the, you know trying to find information on this w- was really hard you know i i i know it's a new story but but gee, there's so little information yeah. about actually finding anything about the investment. And, and that's a, I mean, that's a red flag all in its own. Who is this guy and what's his history? And, you know, who, who did he manage money for before? All of those things are, are, are just hard to find. I mean, it's got tones of Jack
1: Milne and the PSC Guaranteed Growth Fund uh, because uh, you know there was lots of noise about it at the time. This is twenty years ago. Uh, Jack Milne was sort of you know, round tripping money through a couple of listed companies, all connected to two people called Sue Bennett and Gary Porat, who are yet to be convicted for any crime. But uh, I certainly know Gary Porritt has been sitting in jail for a while. Um, can't get bail. But it's it, it, it's he Jack Milne was running the PSC Guaranteed Growth Fund and there was absolutely zero disclosure. He, it was the days before Unitrust had to had to disclose what was inside them and uh, this uh, that particular scheme led to you know, the evolution of the regulation as we see it today where disclosure is compulsory in, in retrospect. You can't give away the family secrets up front. Uh, and it's a and it's got remnants of that and it's got remnants of made off and it's got remnants of people getting sucked in and not even sucked in by anything particularly exciting or compelling. Um, not being sucked in with Bernie Madoff type returns, but some fairly modest returns, I'm told, of between 8 and 10% a year, which seems safe and easy, and so maybe that made people feel secure. Maybe he's a charming fellow. Maybe he
7: is uh, a slick salesman. I don't know Craig Warren at all. Uh, I think that is the other red flag when 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 you find an investment that's that is delivering. so so let's just talk about eight to ten percent at the moment where when interest rates are high, you know eight to ten percent doesn't sound so crazy because you know you, you could get that on a fixed deposit at a legitimate bank uh, but but just jump back three years ago and 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 interest rates were much lower. and and suddenly, you know a very predictable, Return of eight to ten percent a year, year after year after year after year for fifteen years. Uh, you know anything that 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 performs at a few percent above inflation with incredible consistency, uh, that, that that stinks, Bruce. It's 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 not even just smells, but it really <laughs> stinks because it's impossible yeah. that you can you can beat inflation or beat interest rates by two or three percent without taking material. Uh, responsible risk, in other words, buying shares in companies or buying shares in properties. That, uh, you know, w- w- whatever it is that you're buying, you know, and those aren't going to perform in a monotonous straight fashion. They're going to go up and down. You, you know, sometimes a, a, a volatile investment, something that that moves in price. You know, going up and down. You know, a, a generic. Kind of general equity unit trust you know it never goes in a predictable straight line year after year after year i wish it did it would make my life a lot less uh stressful than it is but but, but it doesn't do that and that's actually a good thing that's a healthy sign an investment that's giving you a few percent above inflation or above kind of nominal interest rates that you can get on savings accounts and fixed deposits, and it does it every single year, you know, rock steady, uh, the biggest red flag of them all. And especially then you add all the other things we've spoken about, you know, that, that, that's kind of the big red flag, to, to be very honest. And the fact
1: that it was in a trust structure, something Simon Brown uh, at Just One Lap was saying earlier, uh, that's the, the dodgiest signal of the lot. And, I, I, and because this thing isn't actively marketed, I've not found any advertising for it. I've not found any promotions for it. I'm not seeing any sort of Facebook post of saying, oi, geezer, give me your cash. Um, I was, I'm seeing none of that sort of stuff. You've got to assume there's a network effect that played some sort of role here, whereby word of mouth people were sort of drawing others in and... Doing the work for
7: him. Uh, I mean, so, so that's probably the easiest part for me to understand because that's just straight psychology. I mean, you know, you cre- create scarcity. Uh, you know, cr- creates uh, the, the sense of of being in a club. Uh, cr- create the sense that you you're getting access to something that everyone else can't get. Uh, th- there will be uh, an, an element of uh secrecy about it because you can't tell everybody otherwise you know you know the returns won't be there anymore so you know so get your money and then you know you're you're allowed to invite one or two friends in. They feel incredibly privileged so so they you know bring their money in then they're allowed to invite one or two friends. Uh, So so that psychology, I mean even the car companies use it. You know, they launch a new car and they say to you, you can't get stock of this car for the first year. You know, there's no stock. They, They create scarcity, they create this sort of anticipation. So so that's generic kind of basic psychology, but, but the, the lack of transparency w- of the investment inside the trust, yeah, that, that's a, that's a big red flag. You, you, you need to know what you own. Uh, and, and if you can't understand it and there's no disclosures and no, nowhere to see kind of transparently what you own uh wow like red flag again you know it's just so many red flags and 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 the basic psychology of of all of us being trusting all of us fear of missing out wanting to get growth not wanting to, to see volatility you know the, the, this kind of ticked all the the, the scam boxes and and I, I can't see that it missed any of them
1: and people still put money into it people still put their hard-earned money into it and no doubt people are being wiped out in this bloody mess and it's uh it's shameful and it's catastrophic uh, for the people who've been caught up in it. In a moment, Warren, let's change tack. I want to talk about whether this is the time finally to take money out of the stock market as stock markets fall and we've seen the JSE today below 70,000 and put it into a high interest rate account it's beginning to smell like interest rate increases are are, are on top of us again, we've got the US economy which is growing at a, the best levels in two years, 4.9% growth in the third quarter of this year even though there's a risk of recession there's a fear of inflation um, and we've got that those inflation fears just won't go away, particularly here, today's PPI number, producer price inflation on top of a worse than expected CPI number a couple of weeks ago are going to get cages rattled within the Reserve Bank. Maybe we see a rate increase maybe we don't. I don't know about that. But Dewey is it time to go into a fixed deposit? That is something we need to talk about in a moment.
0: The Money Show Personal Finance with Warren
1: Ingram So Warren fixed deposits versus the stock market stock markets in sharp retreat nobody's making any money it's all panic 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 <gasps>
7: what do we do? I love this question because um, w- w- when it comes up, it becomes kind of the, the opposite of, of, a, of a sell signal. It becomes a buy signal uh, because when when collectively people start to exit the stock market and and start to move their money to cash, it's called capitulation. It means that they believe that that you know that's the last time shares will ever make money, uh, and and therefore uh, th- th- they sell their shares, offering. Uh, often, very nice, fantastic companies at at a huge discount, and and capitulation is always the last stage of of a stock market downturn. Uh, the, the next thing that happens after that is the, the the stock market starts to go on a tear. It, it shoots up uh, over, and sometimes it could be over months, and sometimes it can be over years. So. If, uh, if you're asking me this question, um, you, you have to know I'm smiling on the other side of this microphone because m- maybe, maybe we're at the end of the bad news and, and, and the good news is around the corner. Or maybe and, we're just at the so- beginning of the bad news and worse news is
1: around the corner. That's always the risk here, isn't it? Which is
7: what makes it so blimmin' difficult so so the 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 short answer to that is please don't time the markets don't now you know listen to this segment and go okay warren said it's it's the market's gonna boom i'm gonna you know borrow money out of my bond and take money of my credit card and put it into the stock market I'm, i'm certainly not saying that i i think uh it's important to understand that that valuations matter in other words the price that you're going to pay for the these businesses on the on the stock exchange if they are low if the prices are cheap if these businesses are high quality and and trading at good discounts it tells you that you can buy them and you might be wrong that you buy them a year early or two years early but but if you buy them and you sit back and you do nothing for the next five or eight years, there is a really good chance that you're going to make very good money, including the dividends that these companies are going to pay, uh, even if you were out by a, a year or two. So, so I, I think I wouldn't worry about the timing so much, but I, I certainly wouldn't be borrowing money to, to do this. And, and, and maybe to bounce to to fixed deposits. You know, if, if I did a quick search on, on what's the highest interest rates I could get from, from banks at the moment on a fixed deposit, and it, it looked to me around about 10%. Uh, That's a good return. A
1: of- it's guaranteed, isn't that lovely?
7: It is a nice return and and you know understanding that you know your, your only real risk is that the bank that you've put the fixed deposit money with goes south and you know our banks are very well regulated by the Reserve Bank uh, and most of the time very prudently managed so so the risks of actually losing all of your money are incre- incredibly low. However, you need to understand that interest uh, it, it creates a tax problem for you, and and it could be anything from two percent. You know, if you're earning ten percent, you might be giving SARS two percent of that, or you know, up to four point five percent if you if you're a very big taxpayer. So suddenly your 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 returns not so good, and and then you take off the the impact of of losing buying power of your money. In other words, inflation. Uh, and, and my simple math tells me you, you're in a position if you're a big taxpayer that you you might well be. Uh, seeing the buying power of your money eroding, in in other words, going backwards by 0.5% a year. Or if you're a low taxpayer, then maybe your your buying power of your money is growing by 2% a year. That is not so exciting to me. If we look at the stock market, uh, and you and you look at the taxes that you'd pay there it's called capital gains tax it's it's probably 18 percent if you're a really high taxpayer and then we look at the returns that you get from the from the stock market it's you know anywhere around uh, kind of 11 to 13 percent or 10 or 10 to 13 percent over long periods of time the likelihood is you're, you're you're making around about you know two at worst to to kind of four percent above inflation that, that sounds to me like a much better return especially because I'm not paying tax every single year. I'm only paying tax once when I sell the investment. So simple math for me, Bruce, I can't do complicated uh, ca- calculations. You know, I, I went to government school. Uh, and, and to me, my simple math tells me, this is a great time to be buying shares, not a great time to be investing in in, in fixed uh, d- deposits, unless you're never gonna pay tax. You know, m- maybe then you lock away some of okay. your money in a fixed deposit and and enjoy enjoy the return. Uh, but, but I do think that the stock market is always rewarding to investors with patience when they're buying at a very low price. And below 70000 Gee, gee, that, that's a low price. Then we move on to a question from Robert, who
1: is making it a little bit more complicated because he's kind of on the same theme. This is a theme, though, about something called structured products or products with guarantees. This is where... You are told that if you put your money away for a five-year investment term, we will pay you X amount of interest per year guaranteed. Now, that becomes quite attractive for people who are risk-averse because they're not going to get the full 10% that you found. They may get 8%. They might get 8.5% guaranteed to them over the next five
7: years. Robert wants to know if that's a good idea uh my, my short answer is i, I don't like these i n- never have uh you know especially the ones that have a five-year term uh and and a couple of reasons one uh i did look at the the blessed brochure that that, that robert sent us and, and it was more than 30 pages now now We spoke a little bit earlier about understand what you buy, understand the transparency, be sure that you know what's going on. There is no way I'm saying Robert's trying to punt us a scam. He's not. But there is no way you can tell me that you'll understand all of the terms and conditions of an investment when just the brochure, forget about the application form and the prospectus and all the other things, if the brochure alone is over 30 pages – You've got a problem. You already can't guarantee yourself that you know what you're buying. So so that's my first problem. Now we've got a transparency issue. So, so there's a guarantee. Uh, the, the, the guarantee is all good and well until things really go wrong. Because then all of a sudden, if your investment loses a bit more than 30 percent, well, sorry, you've got no guarantee. Then it's just tough luck. And, you know, you take your knocks like everybody else. So... Actually, we're we're only really guaranteeing your money within a little bit of a range uh, uh, in 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 the range that suits us. You know, in, in the range where we actually, you know, it suits the the person issuing the guarantee, and. That's probably my other big issue here is, you, you know, offering someone, you know, you know, a return over a five-year period uh, uh, that's guaranteed of, of 8%. Well, uh, you know, most of the time buying – I mean, buying a stock market uh, index over a five-year period w- w- would give you a return, you know, as I just mentioned, kind of around 10 or 12% per year – uh, in a much more transparent way. And, and if there are losses, you, you will know about it. But, but, you know, the, the worst that the stock market loses you over five years is probably only about five or eight percent over the five year period. It's, it's really catastrophic when you lose 30 percent in a year, but, but that's rare that, that, that 30 percent stays w- with you over a five year period. So. Gee, Bruce, I'm not loving the, the, the fact that the guarantees actually aren't that helpful. You know, they're only guaranteeing a little bit of a loss. Secondly, you do lock your money away. Thirdly, the return that you, you you're getting sounds very attractive, but, but you're probably going to get a much better return just buying the, the, the all share index, you know, in a normal exchange traded fund or a normal unit trust, put it away and forget about it. Uh, and, and then my other big issue here is, these are hugely lucrative products for the people that issue them. They, they're they're great for the insurance agents that sell them. They're great for the insurance companies or banks that, 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 you know, take the money. And and always ask yourself the question, why would a bank or an insurance company uh, product issuer give you all of these guarantees and all of these structures and this really complicated thing if it was the best thing ever? Why, why would... You know, sixty billion rand unit trusts exist. If if this is the answer to all problems, the, the reason is. Uh, it's not the answer to all problems. There are lots of terms and conditions and, and lots of catches here. And so psychology wise, I understand that we, we like investments that, you know, that we, we've got some kind of protection. We, we like the idea of someone saying, don't worry about it. We've got this. Uh, we'll look after you. You know, we'll give you a return, but, but they don't really, they're not really looking after you when it really goes wrong, when you really need the most. It, it's a bit like your car insurer saying, uh, I'll, I'll protect your car from, from, you know, theft and all of these things. But but gee, if it gets if it gets stolen, uh, you know, in your house, in your garage, then no, I'm not protecting you anymore, and I'm not going to protect you if it gets stolen from the fancy shopping centre when you've parked it in a lock bay. And so actually, you know, they are protecting you, but they're not. In in which case, kind of useless. I'm, I'm not a fan. Warren Ingram,
1: unequivocal and clear on both points, as we like. Thank you very much, Warren Ingram. um, Thank you for clearing up BHI. Thank you for the red flags warning there. If you've got anybody in your family who's got money in BHI and you want to talk to us, Please get in touch. You know the numbers on 021446-0567-011-8830702. And also to Warren, shares versus cash, shares and shares only. And to Robert's question on uh, five-year investment terms and guaranteed products, Warren, not a fan. It may give you comfort, however, uh, uh, Robert, to do it. Uh, but understand the intricacies of what Warren is telling you. If
7: living a alone-